This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we talk computing, technology, the internet, gadgets, all the good stuff. Uh, tonight on the show, it is Laura Summers, uh, looking very dashing. Uh, not many people can mix mustard and purple in such a, a fabulous way. Yeah, well, look, man, I love my jewel tones. Actually, you know, my shoes were totally inspired by you. I was looking for some, like, rockabilly-style shoes, and I was hoping to find something, oh. like, a little bit Warren-esque, but yeah. I don't know if I got there. You can tell me. Give me a rating. I think you've done it better, and yes. I think yours are a little bit newer as well. Mine are getting a bit scuffed. Yeah. Warren always has amazing shoes. Mm. Uh Joe, what, what, would you, what would you say your most amazing things are? Aside from your your uh, glasses, probably the it's best. It's always the glasses. Yeah. It's always the glasses. Do you like to do? Do you like to match the haircut to the glasses so it sort of draws attention to the glasses? Is that? A I only have one haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it is looking the same as I last saw it. That's true. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but but good. I, I wish I could wear it in, uh, as well as you currently do. Uh, I'm with you tonight as well uh, on Warren Davies. Um, any way that we can get young people to uh, to interact with art and the history of visual communication is, is a good thing uh, to my mind. Um, one of my favourite things these days at galleries is to see the kids' descriptions on uh, pieces of art, which I think is really fun. And I think, to be honest, I actually read those a lot um, more than I do the uh, the full history of the, the piece of art. Um, Playing creation is a good way to help uh, get young people involved. I really like the the kid stuff as well. One of my favourite ones at uh, NGV was the Romance Was Born exhibition maybe uh, a couple of summers ago and I've still got the kind of jewelled beard um, hanging over my wardrobe handles at work. I thought that was great. Um, NGV have sort of introduced a, a new program to help um, uh, young people understand art and we'll be taking a look at uh, the program uh, later in the show. Um, Acme also wants to get hands-on with culture. Um, they've always been very good at that. And a production has been timed to run over Halloween. Um, it's asking us to get inside the space of ghosts uh, with the use of virtual reality. Um, VR and ghosts uh, would have to be two of my favourite things at the moment. So that sounds really exciting. Uh, if you've ever wondered what a ghost is thinking, or even if they are thinking, uh, you'll find out uh, in just a few minutes on the show. But before we have those chats, uh, there's heaps that's been going on around the world um, and locally uh, in technology that we do want to talk to you about. Um, one of the things that we always think is very important is privacy, uh, who's looking at your data and information and what's going on out there. And probably one of the biggest brands or, or platforms that um, has an impact on that is Google. Uh, news has come out uh, in the past few days that they've recently dropped a ban on personally identifiable web tracking. Um Effectively, they've got two, um, well, they've got many big pools of data, but two of the biggest pools of data are your uh, personal account information and also your uh, search history, um, uh, probably most obviously managed through uh, places like DoubleClick, who they acquired a few years ago, which is uh, an ad-serving platform. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, they did actually make an update to say that uh, we may share information uh, across these two uh, silos of data, uh, and now it's actually become the default setting for new accounts created on Google, which is uh, a little bit alarming. So the sort of thing that might start to happen is once they put together a, a view of uh, who you are, where you are, and also what you're searching for and what you're writing in emails and, and so forth, um, it's a pretty powerful stockpile of information and probably more stuff than most people would be comfortable uh, having in the one place. So, yeah, I mean, I always, whenever I see something like this come out, um, 
I, I always think about their old mantra, um, don't be evil, and yeah. sort of how 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 close you have to get to that before you're actually becoming, say, bad or a little bit sneaky or a little bit wrong. I mean, what is evil, Laura? Well, oh, that's such a big conversation. It's maybe a conversation for another day. <laughs> but, well, later in the show. Later yeah. in the show. Well, look, one thing I do think is a little bit evil about the way this has happened is that it's slipped under the radar. So obviously, like, I, I realized um, as I read through this news piece that I'd said yes to the update, sort of saying, you know, like that, that opted me into this change without really understanding what it was. And I'm reasonably privacy sort of um, sensitive. I tend to look out for those kinds of changes because I do care about how my data is being used. And I do want to know. Um, the good news is you can actually go back into your settings and change it if you want to. Mm. Um, so if, if you have opted into some changes recently, um, you can go onto your Google My Account page and uncheck the box next to, and this is a good indicator of how unclear this change was. It says, include Chrome browsing history and activity from websites and apps that use Google services. Now, that to me does not say share my data across like lots of platforms, but that's the thing that you have to untick to stop this from happening. Mm. So I would suggest that they've just gone the full... The full Monty, or, or you know, just said let's let's go for like the best data products we can, and not worry about privacy anymore. Which, which, you know, I guess the general public is is probably less sensitive about these things than we are, and um, maybe most people don't care. I don't know. Uh, a guy was showing me his new Pixel phone today, and he was showing me um, one of the new um, uh, services on there. Um, you just swipe to the left, I think, and you've got um, sort of all these cards. I think it's called Google Cards, or oh, forgive me for, for not knowing it. But um, he was showing me all these things, and he's like, how do they know that that's so-and-so's parents' place, and how do they know that? And um, I don't know, it's services like this that contribute to that kind of creepy um, awareness of, of where you are and what you're doing and who you're with and, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the thing I like the least about this is the way they uh, make it so easy to sweep people into it and the way they present it as a feature or a mm-hmm. value-add to mm-hmm. us rather than a value-add to them. Um, at least they can just be honest about it and say, hey, we're going to track you more places and there's a reason we do that and you might benefit from it sometimes. I think people mm. should make an informed choice about those things. Yeah, totally. Interesting. On the topic of creepy being watched by computers and computers knowing a lot more about you, there's been an interesting paper released from DeepMind, which is the company behind AlphaGo. And if you followed that Go championship, which was um, an AI trying to beat a world champion Go player, and that was that was a big deal that happened quite recently, I'd say like two or three months ago. Um, they've recently released a paper talking about a new form of machine learning that they're working on called a differential neural computer. And what that basically is is a fancy way of saying they're trying to give their um, neural networks multiple layers of memory that can make connections and what that ultimately turns into sort of intuitively is inference. It's like I had an experience and I've had another experience and I can form some kind of opinion about those two things or I can form some kind of learning or understanding about what's happened between them um, or at least that's the ultimate the ultimate theory. Like what they're currently doing is optimizing things like if you, if you imagine the London Tube Network they're trying to optimize things like what's the shortest network between between one stop and the other. Um, and another example they posted on this paper was um, if you're building up a family tree, so you're building up, say, for instance, a bunch of family relationships over several generations, you can then use that set of layers of memory to identify, like, from, you know, the, the youngest child who is their great uncle on their father's side. So that's the sort of thing that uh, neural networks were not doing well before and they're succeeding with in this new, the new model. So it's a really interesting um 
piece of progress. And yeah, it's it's exciting to see what this is going to mean in terms of inference and reasoning and like you know layers of learning being applied. It's funny when you think about it. Um, it makes a lot of sense that um, being able to uh, apply what you've learnt to uh, a, another situation. But when you think about, say, uh, a robot sort of driving a forklift in a factory and kind of working on something and then actually getting up and going, you know what, I could probably drive Laura's car and walk out to the car park and driving off in your car. Mm-hmm. Um, once, yeah, I mean, it's going to sound a little bit spooky, but once they can sort of, once robots and machines can start to learn how to um, kind of do anything and teach themselves, that's when things start to really accelerate, which is mm-hmm. kind of good in a way. Like there's lots of things that we shouldn't be doing that are mundane and, and kind of we can spend our time doing other things, but where do they stop learning, you know, mm, is yeah. the, the common question. And more importantly, like, do they start making um, self-directed decisions? Like, mm. you know, that's, that's what that whole, um, uh, the... Um, oh, I've just lost the word. The, when when you have the edge of AI turning smarter than people. The singularity. The singularity, thank you. I couldn't yeah. visualize it. I couldn't come up with a word. Um, but, yeah, that's that's definitely, like, one of those drivers that might push us towards that kind of um, uh, a future world. But but certainly there's there's still so many bugs and types of um, technology smoothing to work out between here and there. I wouldn't get too freaked out about it yet. One of the places that we do like to freak out, though, is in the comment section on uh, articles <laughs> online. And, Great segue. Uh, one of our favourite brands, Wikipedia, is uh, is trying to do something about that. So I understand that they have uh, some ideas on, on what we should be doing here. Yeah, well, Wiki's been managing and sort of curating the comment section um, in articles probably longer than any other news platform or, or content platform on the web. Um, and the amazing thing about the way that they've built this up is that um, there, there's a recent study that's been published looking at like the authors for Wikipedia articles and it's showing how people who started off at highly partisan or highly polarized sort of statement positions have come more moderate into the center over time and that's um, they're accrediting that to the um, guidelines and the way that they've designed and planned these community comment sections so they've basically written out a ton of um, information about what comments and um, suggested edits and things should look like and how to phrase those and how you need to support your opinions with real data and real references and citations um, so so they're essentially enforcing a form of regulation on the the comment section but apparently it's doing a really good job of pulling people out of their echo chambers and into sort of a more meaningful debate it's interesting about um i guess the difference between fact and opinion here is is really important important mm. because extreme opinions should be encouraged and everyone should have their own point of view but i guess one of the things about wikipedia is it is largely factually based so it makes sense over time that we all gravitate towards the middle and things get adjusted and moderated and new information comes to light but one of the, one of the things that I find really frustrating about comments is opinions, where everyone feels that their opinion is the most important or the most valid, or they look for, you know, uh, other people's who mirror theirs, such as the you know, echo chamber that you were just talking about. Mm. Um, I mean, I would like to see more of this around something like this on things like news sites. Um, seems really um, interesting. I, I find mm. it one of the things that journalists uh, quite often don't do enough of is moderating the conversation. Um, it's always very weird to me on traditional media where you see their Twitter handles or something like that and there'll be, you know, if you if you have a comment or a question or what have you, and the journalists very rarely interact with this or they've moved mm-hmm. on to the story and they're doing something else somewhere else in another time zone mm-hmm. and the comments just go crazy and there's no one sort of going, actually, you're way out of line or if you read the story or if you watched the article or mm-hmm. what have you, you'd see that that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, what's interesting in the tech world is I think that there's a lot of um, sort of perpetual engagement, that that thing that you're talking about that's missing with journos, like mm. people 
people will, if you write an article about like a CSX technique and someone comes in and says, oh, you know, this isn't working for me, you'll often see the author of that article coming in and saying, oh, look, well, you know, I, I did mention that this isn't like supported except for these browsers or these newer browsers. So you, you get that kind of feedback and that, that conversation. Um, and I think conversation is the, the piece that's often missing when things sort of devolve into a Twitter troll spiral, <laughs> like things, people stop talking to each other and start shouting at one another that that sort of engagement has lost lost contact with reality a bit that is true um speaking about conversations and and sort of how we like to talk online um we don't often talk about people who who have uh, passed on or people who've made a um you know a difference even even if in just a small way but um something did come up on the weekend which uh really did sad me which was the passing of uh, leslie nasser um or at leslie nasser if um uh, if you've been on Twitter in Australia for a, a few years, um, you would have come across him at some point as probably one of the, the smartest and, uh, I guess, uh, uh, cheekiest um, and sort of most quintessentially Australian of Twitter characters. Um, he was actually over in the US and was uh, tragically hit by a car um, while on holiday um, walking, I think, his uh, two two girls um, to school mm-hmm. or to a class uh, or something to that effect. Um, if you don't know who Leslie is, um, he was behind the uh, fake Stephen Conroy account um, a few years back, um, which was quite popular. Um, he also worked with the ABC to bring... Uh, Twitter to Q&A and sort of it became part of the show and, and very much a fireside occasion mm. um, or event for, for Twitter people um, in Australia. Um, he did a lot of other things, but um, he will be sorely missed. Um, I didn't... Um, I thought he'd actually... When I read this, I thought maybe he'd moved to the States. I wasn't aware of that, but I think he was just there on holiday. So um, he will be sorely missed, and I think um, he's one of the people that was able to have a point of view to um, put people in their place um, and to, to have a strong opinion about things, but he always listened and he always corrected himself or um, if he felt someone was kind of hardly done by, he would do something about it. And there's probably less of that on Twitter these days than there used to be. It's um, it's probably a lot more sort of um, uh, rambunctious and kind of um, uh, it's a harder uh, place, I guess, mm-hmm. these days. But um, Leslie Nessa will be sorely missed. Um, I think there is actually a, a GoFundMe um, campaign up for um, his family to, to help with that. So we might see if we can find a link for that and, and put that up uh, after the show. Uh, there is heaps of cool stuff happening um, over the... Uh, well, it's kind of a long weekend um, uh, around the country um, coming up. Uh, it is Halloween, uh, of course, if, uh, if you like that. Uh, Acme, in partnership with Sandpit, uh, Google's Creative Lab and Grumpy Sailor, uh, are presenting a, a different kind of work. Uh, it's a short and unusual kind of exhibition called Ghosts, Toast and the Things Unsaid. Uh, Dan Kerner from Sandpit joins us in the studio tonight. Dan, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Um, are you scared of ghosts or, or are you used to them now having worked on them? I am actually. My my house is haunted, I swear to God. It actually oh. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't live on Drummond Street, do you? We had we had one there too. I live on Smith Street, and yeah, it, it doesn't like me. Ah, how, how do you know it's a ghost? Is there a history to this particular one? There is. I think it was a brothel for a while, and then it was a butcher. So there's some bad mojo. Building, <laughs> what a combination! Yeah, we had one on a, um, a stairwell that used to push you on the steps, so it was very hard to actually put your foot on a particular step. Yeah, I think my hands got the same thing. Ah, weird. Yeah. Uh, so, um, what's your involvement in this show? Sort of, how do you develop a, a show like this, and, and sort of, what's your sort of technical background in, in terms of working on this? This is a bit of a, a kind of kooky project um, that goes back kind of to the start of the well, actually kind of mid last year. Um, my company, Sandpit, is um, we're a digital agency, but we're um, we're slightly unusual in that we're 
primarily interested in tactile things and the real world and physical objects. So we, we like things that you can reach out and touch or, or interact with in the real world. Um, and we were approached by Google's Creative Lab in Sydney last year to kind of throw around some ideas of stuff that we could do together. Um, and T. Uglow, who's their creative director, was um, really interested in um, kind of screenless technology, which was music to our ears because we tend to do a lot of that stuff. Um, so we got together last year and started throwing some ideas around and um, ended up coming up with this kind of crazy idea um, that we trialled in Adelaide at the start of the year uh, in the Fringe Festival who um, had a interactive category for the first time. Um, and we had this, this crazy idea that two people would rock up at a time and get thrown into this space. Um, uh, before then, they'd uh, have a ghost sheet put over their head. Um, and little did they know that hidden inside it is a gyroscope and a compass in the back and some hidden speakers around their ears, but it, it just feels like a sheet with eye holes in it. Um, you get thrown into this space and you're surrounded by five performers. Um, and based on your orientation, you discover you can hear the inner thoughts of these five people. And eventually you discover that you're actually the ghost of, of one of these people. Um, so we tried that at the start of the year and um, we did it over over two weeks. So two two people are a crack and, you know, there's just over 100 people that got to see it. Um, <clears throat> but we kind of had the, the forethought to shoot the thing in 360 degrees as well. So we had this footage ready to go. Um, so Acme uh, decided that they'd acquire that into their collection. Um, so to show that off um, starting on Monday and uh, next week, uh, we're doing this kind of VR version of the show, but um, at Sandpit we kind of we don't tend to kind of stop there. So we've built this physical installation that happens around it as well. So you, you rock up and you you put on a, a VR visor, but on top of that you put a ghost sheet as well. So you kind of become a part of this more kind of immersive experience. So the, the sh- um, footage that you've shot, is that from the point of view of the ghosts or is it from the outside? It's from the point of view of the ghosts. So it's, you know, in a, in a digital way, it really kind of replicates what the live experience was. Do you find um, people were disoriented in any way or it was very natural, like they're just going to creep around for a minute or two and then they're really into it? It's really interesting, actually. When we when we tried it in Adelaide, the, the first couple of people we put through the experience just looked in the same direction um, and we were watching in these kind of creepy security cameras that were kind of hidden <laughs> at the back. Um, and so we, we, after that, we really had to um, to induct people and actually grab their shoulders and say, hey, you, you can actually look wherever you want. So I, th- I think it's interesting working in the space that we do. We're, we're very used to virtual reality and what it is, but um, it's still really new for a lot of people and you know they're not used to it and they they need to they um, need to understand the fact that it's possible to look in any direction do you think our, our first response or the the most obvious thing to do is just to be a voyeur and just to kind of take things in like is it easy to get confident and to kind of actually do something and affect your environment and grab something or push something yeah it's interesting watching people in an experience like this people kind of rotate kind of timidly <laughs> to mm-hmm. begin with and then once they learn the rules um, and that's the trick with this stuff it's like once you learn the rules you can start to play with them and um, and discover more things in it. So people become a bit more kind of boisterous in it. I'm sort of imagining like an interactive clue where you're kind of like, hmm, who's, whose voice am I hearing in my head? Hmm, yeah. Who am I? How do I fit into this scenario? Yeah, definitely. That's that's the way it works. And um, uh, so one ghost sees uh, one character and the other ghost see the, sees the other. And like with a lot of work that we do, we really encourage people to talk after the experience and to actually figure out between them what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a game in that way to kind of um, figure out what, what happened over the 30-year the period that this experience spans. Mm-hmm. 
Um, how do you go about writing a script for something like this? Well, like, this what, was, a, what a crazy piece of content to produce. Yeah, this was really crazy. So we, um, uh, there's actually six different voices that you can potentially hear. Um, and to do that, we actually had to have six scripts running in six different columns all at the same time. Um, and we've actually, we tried to be a bit clever, I think, with the script as well, where um, at different points in the timeline, in the narrative, kind of thematic things line up or um, uh, different thoughts kind of have a relation to each other. So it wasn't just kind of six streams of, of text running. That actually had something to do with each other. So it was, it was crazy house of cards building the thing. And uh, to put this in experience in you know, Acme, we actually had to do some edits as well. So to do that, we had to print out this huge toilet roll of a script that, that ran the, the whole kind of corridor at Acme where we work. <laughs> We're kind of crossing things out and changing on the fly. But that really helped. So think with something like this to actually see it visually represented like that rather than looking at it on a screen and losing your mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for people who are thinking about um, writing something like this or producing something like, um, like this, what's your advice to people who want to um, create uh, alternate realities or ways to be in the show but part of the show? What, what, what are some of the basics that, that are important, do you think? I suppose we were kind of lucky um, in in this example because um, it, to begin with it was a live show so we could rehearse it on the floor and kind of trial things um, whereas if, if this was just a film that we'd kind of written script of and then went and shot we wouldn't have been able to make all those discoveries um, along the along the way so I know we're, we're, we're a bit privileged in this in this scenario I think so if, if you can find a way to do that that would be the advice that I would give you know stand in the middle of the room and get you know, six performers or however many you've got to surround you and, and do their thing and trial it out because I think often with this stuff um, you can only really learn by by doing it. Mm. Is there any way to kind of um, sort of synthesise kind of a, a virtual reality experience short of actually putting the goggles on or, you know, um, creating a proxy for that or, or something like that? Um, I mean, I always find it really distracting going into these kinds of um, spaces and coming out of them there's not a great kind of um, seamless kind of you know you you put you put the lens down and you pull it up and it you know you can kind of toggle between the two it's it's so um, it's so rude um, yeah I think in in this experience this is probably something I'm most excited about um, with what we're doing at acme so uh, you'll arrive in in this kind of booth that we've built um, mm. and you'll put the um, the Samsung gear on and mm-hmm. on top of the a ghost sheet um, mm. but there's actually a little hole that's cut in the eye hole of the ghost right and we fire up the camera on the device so you can actually see the real world <laughs> and you can see yourself in the mirror with right. the mirror built into the set great before it transitions into the into the VR world so um, yeah it's kind of exciting in this context so we've, we've kind of done something a little bit different that, um, that I personally haven't seen before um, like this so yeah I think that kind of starts to overcome that that problem as a bit of a segue into the, mm. the VR world and what are some of the other um, projects that you've been working on at Sandpit in terms of um, you say you don't necessarily work with screens or you like to make a kind of you know physical experience? What, what sort of most excites you about making stuff these days? Um, I suppose it's um, you know we've done a lot of work in the past where we've built kind of web sites and apps and you know we can definitely do that, but um, getting people to download an app is you know nearly impossible these days. So mm. um, we've done great things like we um, one of my favourites was working with Penguin Books. Um, we made a, a kind of physical phone booth that looks a bit like a kind of 1950s, 1960s New York public payphone. Mm. Um, and you walk up to the phone booth and you pick up the receiver and it's John Safran as the, the operator on the other end. Um, and he says, I've got a whole bunch of authors here that want to share a story with you. 
And we got to spend half a day with a whole bunch of Penguin's authors and get a little story from them that you wouldn't hear from a book or or anything they'd written. Um, and they share a story with you on the phone after you kind of dial them in. Um, and then they say, okay, after the beep, I'd like you to share a story back. Um, so there's a beep and you tell, it, tell your own little story from your own life. And then you hang up and it prints out a little ticket um, with a URL and a um, unique ID. And you can punch in the URL when you get home and um, your unique ID and then hear your story back and share it on Facebook or Twitter or um, then hear it and archive of all the other stories that have been left at the phone booth as well. Um, so, yes, to some degree that involves the web and therefore a screen, but, um, yeah, in itself is this um, this kind of nostalgic object, which is a phone booth. And inside that is, a you know, a Raspberry Pi and an and Arduino, but, you know, it's a computer. But the interface happens to be a, a, a you know, a keypad and a, a phone, which is mm. something we're all used to using. Um, I was just going to ask: Do you do you think that um, people associate that experience as like a physical location? Do you think? I mean, that sounds a little bit like those sort of augmented reality VR things that I've heard of, where people are like oh, they, they're out in a park and they see an augmented reality experience, or they find the jackpot or the you know the little sort of treasure trove that's been left there by somebody else. Um, do you think that? that location in space is still really important to our formation of those kinds of memories? I think it's becoming more so. Well, I hope it's becoming more so. You know, we really like to, to do stuff in the physical world. And, you know, I, I think I think audiences or definitely the audiences that we kind of um, work towards, are, they're not satisfied with sitting at home looking at a computer screen or an app or whatever they... They want to be. They want to be surprised, and they want to be. They want to be physically present in the world. So, if uh, if people want to get involved, what what can they do? Where can they find out information about uh, this experience? Uh, so, if you go to um, Acme's website, um, look up Ghost Toast and the Things Unsaid. Um, there'll be plenty of information there. But uh, we've got a soft launch on the weekend, so there's, there might be some. It's free, but it is ticketed, so people need to book in um, from Saturday onwards. And then um, we're launching fully from um, Monday, which is Halloween. Um, uh, yeah, so either pop down to Acme or check them out online and book a ticket before you rock up. Spooky, Dan. That was uh, that was great. Good luck with the show. Thank you. If you are at a loss to do with um, uh, your class um, or your kids and you're looking for something great to do uh, in the cultural space, um, starting this month at NGV, uh, all from next week, so um, I may be corrected on that shortly, uh, Digital Creatives uh, draws on the NGV collection and uses technology to introduce uh, new ways for students to understand and respond to art. Uh, as well as create their own, which uh, sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, joining us in the studio now are Michelle and Daniel from the NGV uh, education team. Uh, guys, thanks for coming in tonight. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so uh, what what inspires you guys to, to sort of play with art and kind of I- interact with the exhibition and, and what would you like to tell kids about um, how engaging art actually is? It's not a, a static format. Um, h- how do you try and communicate that? I suppose as art educators, we're primarily interested in having kids engage actively with art and to form their own interpretations, to create their own art. And so code and technology is just another means to do that, a 21st century language to do that. Um, Does it come naturally to them? Like if you encourage kids to, to kind of do this, do they take it and run with it? Absolutely. I think uh, for kids it's much more natural than perhaps some of our older audience, uh, but students are very actively engaged in using iPads and I think it's a very natural extension of what they're doing in their ordinary lives. Um, obviously there is an education team at NGV and I, I sort of hadn't thought a great deal about it until until today or sort of um, leading up to this. What um, What is your mandate or what, what do you try and encourage with the education team at NGV? 
basically we're looking for ways to connect students with art in any aspect of the curriculum and so I suppose this particular program's been an opportunity to link in with science, technology, engineering and maths, STEM, the big focus in um, education these days. So we're always looking creatively at what we have in the collection and in exhibitions and finding ways to connect art with whatever aspect of the curriculum that may be. Are, are there some physical challenges with doing that? I mean, obviously, a collection is, is fairly um, important and, and priceless in some instances. How do you um, get people to interact with it without actually busting the art? Yeah, well, it it's, it, it's a really big part of it, actually, too, because like, we're at this um, pretty kind of creative space as well. So a lot of our, our coding programs, the, the actual art itself is key to them. So even in before we even run any of our workshops, the kids actually go through the gallery first and they look at the artworks and they're really inspired by it and then they bring that back into into the coding workshop that we're doing and in some cases they're actually then going back into the gallery again so we're, we're doing a, a workshop where they're actually building a, a digital paint program um, like MS Paint when I was a little kid but you know, they're making their own and then they're going back into the gallery and then and using that to create their own artworks too so the actual space is like super important to what we're doing um, and yeah and they can get right up to them too so this is like really cool with this program it's like you know we're, we're making stuff oh and you're right in front of some priceless artworks while you're doing it which is definitely fun for me even though it's you know it could be a bit scary for other people looking but yeah it's great You'd actually be pretty surprised at how kids just react to the space. I think they they naturally understand how to work in it and and it's a very inspiring space for them too. So I think that it works very well and it's what makes the program quite unique. I love the idea of um, encouraging a, an engagement with art as a dialogue as opposed to like a one-way stream. So I'd like, I'm, I'm really curious to hear like what kinds of outcomes do you get? Like what do the kids do to the art or how do they insert themselves into it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's quite funny. So we, we, we trialed these, obviously, these programs before we, we've launched them. Uh, and that was great, just seeing what they would do with... So we, we kind of had this this idea or this design of what we wanted to make and they just went in and completely changed these things around and um, they would uh, they would listen to what we were saying when we were talking about the artworks and the history and the story behind them and and really take that and and kind of augment that um, that that experience with the with the, the coding and the programs they were making and they really love the the way that they could actually bring themselves into that artwork too so one program we're doing which is um, using the weeping woman as, as inspiration which is you know an amazing an amazing artwork but the students are now learning about that story and realizing with code that they can actually they can animate it and they can add their voice to it and they can interact with it and then they can share it and get other people to use it so it's really spreading that story so I think you know I, I kind of thought yes they're going to make some really cool programs and, and really enjoy that but what I'm seeing and what I'm, I'm really liking is the fact that they're, they're really eager to learn more about the artworks as well and those stories behind them um, which has been great because they're, they're already engaged you know when they're there and, and that's been really really cool to see It seems like you are sneaking in a little bit of um, uh, art theory uh, along with um, the coding here there's some stuff on uh, what is abstract art you know you'll be talking with them about Rothko and uh, a few other things. Um, there's a, a, a session on creators and inventors as well. Um, are, are there any collections in the in the gallery that in particular resonate with kids or they want to get involved in or... Yeah, I think, you know, at the, at the moment we, we've been using it, so, you know, especially with the primary kids, like we're, we're finding it as a great way to, to introduce them to art and, and code. And like you said, they both have their own languages and their own styles and they're, they're both quite unique. So we can kind of put those together. But, um, yeah, in terms of what they're looking at, I think, I mean, Michelle's probably best to answer that what the kids are really liking with, with the art at the moment. I mean, I'm showing them, you know, color and abstraction and, and these really beautiful pieces as well. But then we've got some great new pieces as well that they're really inspiring the kids as, um, when they, as they come in. Yeah, I think I think kids are 
actively interested in a whole range of artwork. I mean, they'll be very interested in antiquities and stories from the ancient world, but they're also highly responsive to digital images that are moving and um, dynamic. So I think the fact that it's the real artwork and it's authentic is the thing that engages them and also the opportunity to be active in their discussion of it and in responding to it. So I think that it's quite a cross-section of the, the collection. But the art is really fundamental to us. I mean, that's key to the program. The technology is a tool for us, but learning about art is really a very key part of what we're hoping to achieve as well. Is there a precedent for this anywhere around the world or are other galleries doing similar things to involve children in, in art or...? Well, there's certainly a lot of people working with art, but to the best of our knowledge, we haven't found anybody yet who's actually using coding as a way of uh, having students respond directly to art. So, yes, that's a great one for us. <laughs> when, when to you guys? When to the NGV? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and how do you think the uh, teachers will take this back to the classroom once they've had this kind of experience? Is it um, generally done as part of, uh, um, will our teachers be taking them to the gallery or is it kind of um, a separate kind of separate to their education? Um, at the moment, like, teachers are really interested in, in coding, as, as, you, as you probably know, and I think this is one of the good things with the NGV, is they, they, they saw that, you know, it's currently, you know, not a curriculum priority yet, but it probably will be, and so they've gone, well, let's just get on it now, and so we've had a, probably a huge amount of interest from <coughs> teachers, because they really want to know this language, they, they want to know it, and, you know, not only the art, but we look at, at coding too, as, you know, as problem solving and computational thinking, and that's really, really cool skills that the kids are learning, and so teachers want to, want to teach that too. So, yeah, great response from them, uh, all teachers from all, all um, you know, different dimensions wanting to come in and kind of learn this as well. And so, again, we use the, the art as the way to kind of get them in because it's a really good way to talk about, about code while, when you have these really good visual kind of images in front of them too. So, yeah, great response from teachers so far to, to want to bring it into their classrooms. I think one of my sort of favourite technology experiences at galleries is the um, just the basic old uh, MP3 player at Mona and sort of walking around and hearing the stories um, as you um, as you do it. I think that's probably one of the the biggest things to unlocking art. It's not easy to be a connoisseur and it's not easy to understand all of the theory, but if you hear a relatable human story, um, it makes it that much that much more real. Um, is there a way to actually for people who aren't a student or, or or a child to actually see what they produce, and is it going to be documented for other people to follow up on? Or well, at the moment, um, so we're, we're using Scratch, um, which is again a very visual coding language, and and the, the the best thing about that is the students can remix it and share it on, and so that's what we're already finding. Right. The, the, the programs that they're creating uh, with us in the gallery space, they're already sharing it out with their friends, and so their friends are are seeing the, the weeping woman that they've made, and they're remixing it, and they're moving it on, and so it's starting to have this presence as it kind of grows out there as well. But yeah, we're also hoping to probably start putting up some some possible resources as well for other teachers as we as we go on um can you tell us a little bit more about scratch for those who aren't familiar with what it is as a, a programming tool like yeah, how, how does it work and how what sort of um outputs do the kids make when they're finished with it awesome so, so scratch was great so it was introduced to us um through through code club which is one of our partners um and it's it's a it's a free um software it's developed by mit mm-hmm. um and it's it's basically what you'd call a block coding language so it's very visual which of course relates great back, uh, back to the gallery really, really well and essentially what the kids are doing is they're, they're, they're putting their code together by dragging and dropping these coloured blocks of code. And so what I like about it is even though it is it does look quite simple about dragging these blocks together, the actual kind of underlying uh, code behind that is, is real. Mm-hmm. So the programs that the students are making by dropping these blocks together are actual functioning programs. So to us, they're, they're learning like the ABCs with, with these visual blocks and they're learning that language and then from there they'll be able to you know use other programs and really kind of develop those skills too. So it's free and it's open source so anyone can use it which is great and it's 
used in primary schools across the world. So it's a really good kind of starting language for these guys. So these specific blocks, they're little instructions or little sort of um, tasks to perform by the code. Is that? Yeah, pretty much. So like, for instance, if they wanted to, if they wanted to, to move their character, they would, they would drag a, a move block. And then if they wanted to, then they make their character jump, they would drag another block, a control block to say, when I press this, you know, do this action. So a lot of if then then statements, basically, mm-hmm. but without them having to know that underlying kind of code behind it. I see what you're doing in there, sneaking in some like <laughs> sneaky computer logic underneath, yeah. underneath the blocks. And that's exactly that what we're doing. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, so when they leave a workshop, like not only have they learnt about an artwork and the history behind it and that language too, but they'll learn those little like if then when statements and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll learn these little code blocks as well too. So they, they're kind of leaving, you know, learning the best of both of these worlds and combining them together. Mm-hmm. So there is a there is a, a small cost for the session. If you're a, a teacher or a school that's interested in, in pursuing this and, and um, having your students uh, coding with art, um, how do you follow up on this? How, how would you get involved? New web address and yep. um, just go onto the education page and all the booking details for the programs are on that. And there's plenty of sessions? Like you, there are you plenty of sessions. In? We could do these uh, depending on the bookings that we already have, but potentially we could do these every day. Amazing. It's kind of. I'd kind of like to actually give it a go myself. If it's really successful, is there a way that adults can get in and have a, a go with this? Or definitely, you can come along. I'm sure we can do. Could be a night from there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Adult education. We could pull in our short shorts and get down there. That sounds really fun. Thank you very much for coming in, guys. It looks like a, a great program, and um, I, I think um, kids of Victoria and around the country should really enjoy it. Thanks for having us. Just a few minutes left in the show, uh, but there are a few events and uh, weird things that we wanted to uh, throw your way. Um, Looks like there's a great event coming up uh, next week. Uh, Laura, what's this one? Um, So the Known Girls are hosting a free event for women who are interested in learning JavaScript. Um, It's Known Girls Melbourne, um, and it's going to be at Zendesk on the 5th of November, which I think is Saturday week. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a full-day workshop and learning event. You just need to bring a laptop. They give you food. Um, Did I mention it's free? I think that's pretty rad. I, it's free? Yeah. Okay. It's free. Um, and if you're interested, just look up Node Girls Melbourne and we'll probably tweet the link later as well. Yeah. I think the good thing about this is there's three different classes as well. So you can be kind of a complete beginner, know nothing about coding, um, right up to sort of a little bit more advanced. So uh, everyone can get along. That sounds like a pretty good sort of social uh, occasion, I think. Yeah. Um, another thing that's pretty good, um, SBS uh, have actually put out a, uh, a VR um, app. So um, you can use it in your cardboard. You can um, stick it in a, a bunch of different headsets. Um, this is good. I, I spent a lot of time sort of going back through stuff like uh, or stuff on on demand. Um, so you're, you do <laughs> great. Um, is there any particular content that you think this would be really good for? I mean, for documentaries, it'd be amazing. Um, yeah, I think for things that are remote, right? Like things that you're just not going to get along to normally. Like there's some amazing areas in Alaska, for instance, that I would love to travel to, but I'm not likely to because it's going to take me a long time and a lot of money to get there. So I think particularly remote experiences or like cultures that are, you know, you don't necessarily want to have hordes of tourists trapping through there, but you want people to learn about their culture and to engage with it a bit more. Um, they've got some uh, early content that's ready to go uh, in VR form. Um, they've got some stuff with uh, Ernie Dingo, uh, A Pig's Life, uh, an exploration of the life of a pig in Australia's meat trade. That could be quite uh, eye-opening. Uh, tomorrow's Diwali, a real-time VR art animation exploring the significance of Diwali uh, in Australia. Invisible, an immersive journey into the UK immigration detention system. So it seems like a great way to access a lot of this content. I have to say I'm pretty scared of a pig's life. That sounds like it's going to be gory and sad. Yeah, that that, uh, that could be a little bit uh, confronting. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, it's still really good. Mm. Um, one of the things that um, is also pretty good, um, and um, well, it does affect pigs as well. Um, one of the unfortunate things with uh, research is um, historically it has involved animals in a lot of ways, but Harvard researchers uh, are trying to cut down on that, and they've figured out a way to 3D print uh, a heart on a chip, um, which is really interesting. Um, microphysiological systems or organs on chips are emerging as a way for uh, us to, to look at the effects of drugs and cosmetics and, and diseases uh, and the impact they may have on the human body. Um, historically, it's been quite expensive and it's been very hard to get the data um, out of um, these chips. Um, it takes a long time. Um, you know, you have to have expertise and, and so forth. But um, the fact that you can uh, now pre- 3D print um, these heart cells and uh, just drop them on a chip is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I think this is this is great um, and hopefully um, it will deal a swift end to, to animal testing and um, a lot of the even sort of um, clinical human trials and so forth that go on. Yeah, I totally agreed. Uh, uh, I was just going to say, like, the, the, the thing that this brings to mind to me is um, if you've ever done any 3D printing or had to play with a 3D printer, they're so finicky and it takes such a long time to get it right. So I do have to say it made me wonder, hmm, how many cracks did they have to go to get, like, all of the networks and all of the, like, this is different materials as well, like the way that they're printing these sort of organ replacement or sort of... Um, what systems is that they're they're using different kinds of materials to try and synthesize different um, flows and pathways that are like in genetic material, um, or biological material. So, mm. um, yeah, amazing. But they must have some pretty incredible three D printers to get that right. Yeah, it might take a while, and mm. um, I'm sure there'll be uh, a few setbacks along the way. Um, something that also takes a while is travelling to Mars uh, when we eventually do that. Uh, Elon Musk uh, is keen to put a million people uh, on Mars within 40 years. Um, all for, all for um, the, the right reasons, I'm sure. Um, he held a uh, AMA on Reddit um, earlier in the week um, and there was over uh, 5,000 comments and questions uh, around how we're going to get a million people to Mars. Seems like one of those um, pub conversations where someone's like, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. Um, you know, I'm going to swim the heads or um i don't know climb that thing or what have you um but go uh, hike machu picchu yeah exactly um so it's a it's a big goal um Mm. which is which is good um a lot of the conversation so far has not been around the the cargo which is us uh, and how we're actually going to get there there's still a lot of challenges on the technical side of things how you do actually um get a spaceship there and then um reuse it which is a large part of what spacex is is trying to do um as i understand it um mars gets um close to us um every now and again and we can travel, uh, technically you could travel there in a, um, two and a half years with the right uh, technology. Um, SpaceX is uh, about a year or two away from revealing how um, we're actually going to be able to transport people um, on these rockets, but for now they're trying to solve um, the, the, I guess, the um, the physics of, of actually getting the rocket out there. One rad thing he did say in the AMA is that they're pitching this sort of glass dome as the actual domicile when you get there. And I think that's been oh. on everyone's mind, right? Like, <laughs> what's it going to look like if I do go to Mars, if I, like, put my hand up for this risky mission? What's it actually going to look like when I get there? What's home going to be? Is it geodesic? Is it round? Will there be ferns? Well, I, I, I suspect that it'd have to have some kind of, like, UV filtration system, right? Because Mars is a much less dense atmosphere than ours, um, so it's not going to be like a clear glass, but, you know, it could be white. It could be green. You never know. Maybe there will be green Martians. Oh, that would be amazing. Um, I, I did enjoy one of the conversations around um, the fuel, and they figured out that with the fuel here, um, everything that can burn will burn uh, mm-hmm. inside this rocket. So they're like, maybe we should actually do some kind of coating or something like that. So you can imagine some dude in there with kind of asbestos just kind of like coating it. Um, but they didn't seem too, too fussed about that. The thing I like about this guy, I'm sure he's quite wacky, and I'd probably want to leave the room after 10 minutes with him is that he, he he's not 
he's 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 not worried about hurdles or barriers. As soon as something is thrown up, he finds a way to solve it. And I, I think we need mm. more people like that out there. Um, and I don't know. There's probably there's probably more sensible problems to solve than how can we put a million people on Mars. But um, I, I like that it's being thought about. I quite enjoyed his um, interviews. Um, well, when Werner Herzog interviewed him, and oh, um, yeah. lo and behold, the reveries of the connected world, which is um, his documentary about the, the internet and a bit about the history of the internet. And um, at one point, he made Elon Musk head desk, which was um, quite amazing. <laughs> I highly recommend that documentary. That sounds pretty good. Have to check it out. Uh, thanks for tuning in tonight, everyone. Uh, thanks to our guests, uh, Michelle and Daniel uh, from NGV and also Dan from Sandpit and uh, the wonderful show that's going to be on at Acme over Halloween. Uh, we've been bite into it. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday with our revolving crew of humans. Um, you can check us out online and we'll put um, all the links up on our page uh, on our .org.au. Uh, have a great night. Stay out of the rain and we'll catch you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.